I'm Ian Dallimore, and this is Digital Enduring. You're one of the, the driving factors of programmatic in the out-of-home space, so uh, good on you for that. I'm one of those people that if I have to do something, I'm going to do it properly. You took on programmatic at Dentsu, and you were just like, rolled up your sleeves. I think you asked for a lot of content from me and a handful of other folks, and then you like went off into a cave. All right, welcome back, guys. My next guest, he played the trumpet in a marching band as a child, which we'll dive into that. He actually also trained with a Premier League youth football team, soccer for you Americans, at the age of 12. His wife is expecting their first child at Christmas. Beautiful present. And he actually has three kidneys, which we're definitely going to dive into that. My buddy, SVP, out of home at Dentsu, Mark Bartholomew. Good to see you, buddy. You too. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. So you, you had a little oral surgery last week. So glad we could push this back. And lo and behold, we had some tech issues that we couldn't figure out. So we kind of blamed each other on this. Yeah, we're here. We're here now, though. I love it. And look, you're you've we're gonna we're gonna dive into that. But you're you're one of my favorite people in the industry because what we'll dive deep into a little bit later is you know you took on programmatic at Dentsu and you were just like rolled up your sleeves. I think you asked for a lot of content from me and a handful of other folks. And then you like went off, I'm assuming off into a cave and you were like, I'll be right back guys. And you came out just this beacon of, of excitement around programmatic. And you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of hearing you talk at the AAA and tons of other different uh, media post events over the years. And it's, you're one of the, the driving factors of programmatic in the out of home space. So uh, good on you for that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I am. I'm one of those people that if I have to do something, I'm going to do it properly. And it drives my wife insane. No because every time we go on vacation, I have to research the place from top to bottom just to make sure it's correct. The hotel's right. You know, we I can get it. to and from the airport. And it's the same with work as well. And honestly, three, four years ago, when I started that programmatic journey, I think I was pretty open and honest about the fact I was terrified about it at the time. I knew nothing. But yeah, you, like you said, I've had to roll up my sleeves. It was something we needed to do. I'd obviously feel a lot more comfortable around that now and, and actually excited about it. I think the, the way that the industry is going and the programmatic role or the role that programmatic is going to play is going to be huge for the future of our business. Yeah, I love it. We're going to dive deep into that. But most importantly, Premier League soccer, football at age 12. Tell the story. Yeah, I, I um, started playing soccer around six. And I remember my best friend, Adam, I was just, just best man at his wedding a couple of months ago, brought me along to, to soccer training. And I was absolutely terrible. Two left feet, kind of barely could run around the field, um, but really got into it. And, and it got to the point where I played for a few you know, youth teams. And then I went to a summer soccer school where a talent scout was there. And I remember him coming over to my mum at the end of the session saying, I'm, I'm with Charlton Athletic, who at the time were a Premier League team. We want your son to come and train with us. So really cool experience when I think every Wednesday night, my dad took me to, to the other side of London to train with this Premier League team. And eventually they have tri trials to, to get you a youth contract. And I wasn't quite good enough, so it kind of petered out. But I mean, it was, it was a great time just being able to train and, and be around all these great soccer players. And a couple of them actually made it pro in the end. I love that. And I do have to say, the first time I ever met you, the first time our national rep introduced me to you, I was like, Jesus, this could be David Beckham's child. 
so, a, a, like a cheap David Beckham knockoff, I would say. Yeah. Well, maybe, I'm glad you can confirm that he's not your dad. So that's good. <laughs> Check that off the list. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, let's dive in because just like your soccer journey, you started interning at Publicis at age 16. And I did not know this about you, but your dad was the head of IT in Publicis over in the UK. Yeah, so, he, he was. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was funny. It was, I, f- I feel like a lot of people that come into media fall into it accidentally, but actually I knew from, from age 16 after that time doing the internship that, that it was something that I wanted to do. And yeah, my dad was, was head of IT at Publicis. He'd been previously at banks, but then moved across to the media industry. And I just got to be around this amazing atmosphere and environment at the, at the ad agency. And it was something that I wanted to be a part of. So really from age 16, that dictated what I then went on to study at university, uh, which was media and film. And I kind of always knew I wanted to get into the industry. So um, it's nice looking back, you know, 20, 25 years on. Yeah, and it's always a great story whenever you can kind of follow the footsteps of your father. You know, we're, we're very blessed at Lamar. Those of you who listen to all the podcasts, you know, the family of Lamar, you know, the generational change, you know, f- season five kickoff was with Kevin Riley. And we actually went deep into that, like the impacts of your father. And interestingly enough, he talks about, which I want to get your feedback, you know, he says... I really didn't want to be in the out-of-home space at all at first first glance. You know, I had so many other things, but it sounds like you fell in love. And, and I think the, the agency side is just such an amazing place. And for our listeners that are more on the publisher side or, or even just tech folks that, that don't know the day in the life of the agency side, I mean, those of us who have watched Mad Men, and I'm encouraging our producer Faith to watch it as well, it's such an energetic place. Obviously, it's changed significantly from those days, but maybe touch on that a tad. Like, you're, uh, I know when we talked about it, the energy and the vibe really kind of swayed you that much. What were, were there particular moments, or was it just like the entire experience? It, it was the, um, you know, what I loved, I really loved during that internship is that I came in as this 16 year old fresh faced, you know, kid basically. And I was working with all these guys who had been in the industry 20, 30 years and they treated me as one of their own. It was, it was one of those environments where everyone had a voice, no idea was a bad idea and everyone was welcome to share their ideas, which I just loved. And I don't think I'd seen or, or heard of that kind of environment before. And it really is like that. Even working at Dentsu for the last eight years, both both here and in London, we give people a voice and the opportunity to come up with ideas. And, and even now, to, to encourage people back in the office, we're doing brainstorms as a team on a Wednesday morning where someone will come with a live brief for one of their clients and, and everyone will, will chip in and come up with ideas. So it's just one of those really, really collaborative team effort kind of environments. And, and I think that probably comes comes back to you know the team sports and the football that I played in as well. I just love being part of that wider, larger team um, and sharing ideas and, and thoughts. Yeah. And every everyone has a, a purpose and a meaning through it. I in you obviously you ended up at Dentsu. Dentsu's a larger agency, formerly Posterscope, where where you you worked it's now just kind of morphed into Dentsu. What it, I love the idea of the brainstorm because that's that's what out of home is, is literally a blank canvas. Mm-hmm. So a brainstorm is meaningful. And I always jokingly talk about this internally when we have brainstorms and we had quite a few this week in the past, but it's like, what does a brainstorm look like for like a mobile and online campaign? Like it, it can't be that exciting. So maybe kind of give our glis- our listeners just like a glimpse of like what a recent brainstorm was and and why you get so excited about out of home specifically. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think you, you just look at some of the campaigns we've probably seen over the last few weeks. And, you know, the one that we think stands out at the moment is the Barbie campaign for the launch of the movie and just some of the creative ideas around that. Where else can you do that? This is a real world experience, like you say, in online and mobile spaces. Yeah, there are creative things you can do, but there are limitations. And I think, like you say, with the blank canvas on out of home, any idea is possible as long as you have the budget and, you know, the, the determination to make it happen. So, so our brainstorms start with that, really. They really are just a blank canvas. We kind of run through the brief. And then really, it's just an encouragement to say there are no, never say no, there are no bad ideas. And every idea and every time someone speaks, it's yes and yes. rather than saying no. So you're building on those ideas. So even if something doesn't quite work, then someone would build on that with something that might be a little bit more feasible. So it really is just this blank canvas where people come up with some ideas and then we build off of that and and they generally blossom. And honestly, the, the last three that we've done have been really exciting. Some really cool stuff around dynamic content on, on digital out-of-home screens. So it really is just endless. And, and we're picking new briefs every week to run through as a team. And it's just great to see, especially the young people in the industry, come up with these new ideas that perhaps us older folk do not come up with. Yeah. <laughs> it's And that's that's what I love about it, right? Is it's You could easily be trapped in this kind of world of like, okay, our job is to fulfill briefs not from a creative idea, just get rates, availability, and you know a, a few directions on where to go with our publishers. And that's your job. Stay in the lane. We're just going to buy the media. And one of the things that I've always loved about Dentsu is, is that mentality, exactly what you're talking about. It's like, no, it's beyond that. And, and I believe that that really helps to drive talent and it helps you allow kind of the campaign come to life in a different direction that maybe even, you know, up the stream, the creative folks didn't even realize like, wait, we can throw a 3D extension for that, make that hotel actually jut out, come to life with a, with a digital 3D concept, or we can build out a whole hotel room on the side of a building and like rip the side of the building off. See, look, we're riffing right now. And that just makes, that just makes the media just more impactful. It does. Um, and, and what I would say, and, and we encourage this across all of our teams, is when we respond to a brief, yes, we respond with the media recommendation, but there's always, there's always an upsell. There's always a, okay, you've given us this budget, and here's the plan that we recommend. However, if you had this budget, this is what we could do. And there's always a build on that, similar to, to our brainstorms. It's the, kind of the yes and mentality, which works really well, and clients love it. And even if they don't end up going for that, you know, that larger plan and the additional idea, we're showing value and we're adding value at that stage. So on the publisher side, right, on the, the vendor side, yes and is something that, that's difficult for a lot, of, a lot of companies. I know that we instill that within Lamar, like nothing, no idea is too extreme. And we've done our we've done our fair share of extreme ideas. We've actually done our fair share partnering with you guys, dynamic content early on in the days, early on, which I'm going to get you to touch on on that side of the density world as well. But it's it's imperative that you don't just behave as a vendor as just like this cookie cutter. I gave you rates, I gave you availability, and make sure the vinyls here at this time or the digital assets are here delivered in this specific manner. And you know. I would imagine in those briefs, you probably have a lot of few publishers in mind where it's like, hey, I know this, this specific publisher, you know, they're partnered with X, Y, and Z, and they can do whatever we want. So a little touch of encouragement and, and how a publisher should behave to how they can enter into those brainstorms. Maybe touch on that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, I, I always say that we're all, we're all always selling. Right. And I think it's quite easy to think that an agency's role is just to take a brief and, and respond to it without 
adding real value beyond that. Um, and I love the collaboration that we see in the out-of-home space. And, and I think empowering people and, and involving them makes them care a little bit more as well. So if you really make someone feel like they're part of the brief, um, and we do this with clients as well. We invite vendors in to actually come up with brainstorms and ideas with, with the clients. We do, we do that quite often. And it's largely coming back actually after you know a couple of years during the pandemic when we weren't doing that. But that collaboration and that that kind of the will to come up with these creative ideas, I think is is super, super important. Yeah. So go a little bit deeper into the the dynamic side of things. You guys did something very unique years and years ago. And, you know, to set the stage, Lamar, this is kind of one of my things that I'm so excited about of over early on in my career was just really kind of pushing the dynamic content side of digital, live scores, streaming live tweets changing creative based off of weather. And we have a phenomenal team, our network operating center, our knock that we embrace that. And the limitation, what what happened that, and we'll give a shout out to our boy, Martin Porter, who runs all of uh, Dentsu out of home. You know, he challenged, he was like, Ian, this is fantastic. And this was years ago. He said, this is great, but it's you and two other vendors that have this capability. And obviously the buy is much bigger than that. So I'll kind of lead you directly into insert Dentsu's dynamic creative content team? Yeah, we, we have a platform that we invested in back in 2011 called Live Poster. It essentially enables you to house creative templates, which update in real time using data triggers. So that could be location triggers, weather, as you mentioned. Any, any data feed that you can access via an API has the ability to change creative in real time and push that out to, to screens. LivePost is agnostic. It runs off HTML5. So without going into the, the specifics of that, it basically means that it's pretty much compatible with most digital out-of-home screens that are connected to the internet in the US. Why is it important? Honestly, for us, relevancy and, and contextual relevance is done across every other digital channel. It's the norm. It isn't in digital out-of-home. I think we, we estimate about 10 to 15% of digital out-of-home campaigns having some kind of contextual relevance. But if you make something relevant to a consumer, they're more likely to recall the message and, and recall the brand. And we've done a lot of research around this that suggests contextually relevant creative and creative that re- that's relevant to your location delivers about a 53% increase in, in recall, which is huge. It means that every impression that we're running on digital out of home is working a lot harder because you're speaking to that audience at that specific time. So we've done a lot. And you know, the, I think the, the campaign you're probably referencing was for one of our clients Yes. where we partnered with a bunch of NFL teams. We run countdown to the start of the games, live scores throughout the games, and then a win or lose message as well. So it really drove the association with those NFL teams and, and, and excitement amongst the fan base. Yeah, and one of the things, and we'll definitely in the blog post make sure we drop, we actually have an amazing video we did for that campaign as well. And it, was, it, it wasn't just out of home, right? There was YouTube TV. That's whenever NFL and YouTube just started their partnership. And they had these fantastic commercials where if your team was getting blown out or certain at halftime, it's like, hey, put down the Crown Royal and you know grab a shot of water, grab a glass of water. Or if the team just got obliterated and the game's over, you know, instead of putting that final score where they lost, they'd have kind of a unique kind of cheeky message as well. And I think you're right, right? The, the whole idea is if I'm a brand and I'm doing all of this on mobile social CTV, then why not have that same message playing throughout the marketplace on roadside billboards? Because you've heard me say this to nauseam, we as consumers, we don't care what the screen is, but if that message is kind of cohesive throughout my journey and throughout my day or 
night when I'm watching football and maybe I got to run out, grab the kids and I can see that live score. What a beautiful marriage of all media that kind of keeps that brand top of mind at that moment in time. But if you're going to invest that type of money, time and effort as a brand, why not make it very simplistic? And that's one of the things I've always loved about LivePoster and the research that comes behind it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I think one of my colleagues put it put this brilliantly. Before digital out of home existed, and it was just you know standard out of home, it was used to shout at everyone the, the media channel. Now you can speak to people on a, a bit more of an individual basis and make make the message relevant to them. And like you say, if we're doing that across other channels, even though out of home is a one to many play, you can still make it relevant to the majority of the people who are seeing that ad on that screen. Yeah. So insert now the evolution perfectly segue into the next conversation around programmatic. So I want you to talk about, because again, I alluded to it in the very beginning, I was very proud of you. You gathered a ton of content. What, what was that journey like? And you, know, you kind of said it in the beginning, you know, when you're going to do something, you're going to do it to perfection. And I've learned that quickly about you. But talk about that process and maybe not just around programmatic alone, but just encouraging our listeners when you have or you're giving something like, hey, this is a direction that I need you to go in. What was the strategy behind it and how, what was the process like? Because programmatic is a lot. I, I went through it 11 years ago and I was like, Jesus, this is, this is all over the place. How does this even fit in the out-of-home space? Yeah, it, it was a lot of reading. I'll be honest. I think I, I bought probably 10 books around programmatic trading, tried to distill that information. And then I'm, I'm a list taker and a grid taker. So I like the best way for me to learn is to read and then take notes. So I was just, you know, taking a ton of notes on these books I was reading. The one thing I would say is, you know, as terrifying as it was, actually, once you become familiar with programmatic, you realize it's not actually as complex as it seems initially. And I think there's a lot of people who look at it and go, geez, this is, this is crazy. Um, but once you dive into it and you understand the kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of it, um, it's actually not that difficult. You know, you're trying to reach people with the optimum media campaign based on where they're likely to be at a specific moment in time. It, it's as simple as that. And I think where is the online space, and a lot of the books I read were kind of focused on the online space, is built around these really complex algorithms. For out of home, it's, it's very simple. It's all, all location. So as, as long as you're able to distill and, and separate the online world to, to the out of home space, it becomes a lot more simple to, to understand. But it really is just taking the time to, to read and, and lean in. And we've seen that. We've, we've now got 20 people across the out of home team alone who are hands on keys buyers. And of that 20, probably half have really leaned in and they are complete experts now. They could probably do it with their eyes shut. So it's just a case of you know empowering people, giving them the right tools, but then also being reliant on them to really lean in themselves and, and want to understand it. So there's there's a lot of a lot of chatter in this space around education, and you know you and I were at the same media post event in La Jolla, and I thought you did a phenomenal job of just kind of laying out the the process and about programmatic specifically, and education is key, and just like dynamic content. I mean, well, forever, I would walk into agencies and some of my counterparts and we would talk about, you know, hey, this is how we can change out based off of weather. You could, and we would say it to nauseam. And then while we saw this massive resurgent like two years ago, it's like, let's do dynamic content. We're like, wow, that finally paid off 10 years ago we were having this conversation. But touch on that a bit because education is key and adoption of programmatic digital out of home, yes, within the industry is very difficult for adoption, both internally on the publisher side, internally within the agencies, but also from 
the digital native buyers and the DSPs that we're we're all buying through their exchanges. Yeah, I think I think I'm quite clear about this because I, I hear a few people say that they think education is the number one barrier to programmatic growth. I, I actually slightly disagree with that. I think it's the most immediate barrier, but I don't think it's the, the biggest. I think we need to educate as many people as possible on this. And what we found is when we do, they lean in more heavily because they understand it. I think the biggest challenge is probably measurement and attribution and proving that it works. And I think that is going to be a medium long-term challenge, but also probably the biggest opportunity for us. But the education piece is, is in front of us, and, and that is definitely something we need to address. We are getting more traction in this space now, particularly as we use you know our audience platform within Dentsu M1 and show clients that they can activate across channels using the same audience. That's been really, really valuable to clients like GM who layer their own first-party data in with ours. So that education, it, it works. It's just there, there are so many people to educate. Trying to get around and see, seeing everyone is just it's, it's tough, even, even internally for us. Yeah. So I also love to read over my shoulder. I have, always have at least three, three or four books that I'm reading. But I also enjoy going back and listening to uh, a lot of my friends and colleagues and, and new people. So I did prepping for this podcast, went back and listened to your speech at La Jolla. And you did such a fantastic job and you actually broke it out unintentionally or intentionally into six bullet points. So I'm going to let you talk about it a bit. But one of the first ones you said was, is cut the jargon. It's so easy. I think Elon Musk said it best. Like he's in his book, he said, if, if another person uses an acro- unintended acronym that then takes 15 to 20 minutes to teach everyone that you send a memo out, like you've already lost half of the folks. And I think in the book, he said, I would literally fire you if you use an acronym, <laughs> which we now see he means it. But cut the jargon. Talk about that and what that means and the importance of it. Yeah, it's simple. And I, I, there are tons of examples of this, right? Where, where you hear people say, actually, the smartest people in the room are the people speaking the simplest. And it's so, so true. You don't need to layer in unnecessary words and jargon. And, and particularly, again, just going back to the books I was reading, there was so much jargon that just confused the issue. So when, so part of my note-taking was to distill that down and use layman's terms. And, and that's what I do now. And actually, anyone who hears me present, yes, there will be kind of buzzwords and there will be you know, the, uh, the, the words that we all use around the media industry. But typically, I just try and make it cut and dry and, and, and distill it down into, into bullet points, which is what I did in, in that session. And I present programmatic specifically as data-led buying of out-of-home based on key locations and moments. And that is just the simplest way to describe it. It makes it easier for people to understand, oh, okay, I'm, bu- I'm still buying out of home, but I'm just doing it based on audience data and location data. That, that, that's it. Um, and I just, you know, I get frustrated when people come and present to me sometimes and they try and kill me with jargon because it just sounds like they're trying to be too smart and not really addressing the challenges or, or the opportunities. Yeah, and it happens a lot. Uh, the vendors are extremely guilty of this. And I, I think too often, and, and I sit on the OAAA Programmatic Committee and Automation Committee, and we talk about this all the time, like we should all be speaking from one voice. Yeah, Make it, Trying to make yourself sound smarter than something that's extremely s- simplistic. The difficult part is connecting the pipes, the work that our friends at Vistar, Place Exchange, Hivestack, and others have done. That's the complex connecting the SSPs to the DSPs. Those are the complexities that you know are left to folks like myself and, and others in the industry and the folks at the Trade Desk and Yahoo and DB360. Let that be what it is. But what the selling point should be, and it, it goes to your next point, buyers need to pick up the baton. 
so often in this space, it's kind of like, well, no, 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 I'm not talking to the programmatic. I'm not talking to the out-of-home specialist. I'm talking to digital native people. And early on, I was guilty of that. And now what we're finding is, yes, talk to the brands, talk to the digital and native agencies, talk to the DSPs, but understand that, especially in, in Dentsu, and I want you to touch on this, it's imperative for specialists because they understand the medium. It's not one-to-one like a lot of these DSPs are buyers. It, it was funny, year one, which was 11 years ago, programmatic for Lamar, we'd see a buy come in and it was like they bought one time a day and you had to call up the, the DSP and be like, hey, what are y'all doing? And like, oh, reaching frequency, you know, our model shows we only have to hit one a day or one a week. And it was like, this isn't a social media Instagram takeover ad. This is a billboard on the side of the road. So that's where the education comes in. And that's where the importance of a Mark Bartholomew and, and your 20 plus team. So touch on that a bit and the importance of you and the team being involved. Yeah, going, going back to your, to, to, to the point and, and the media post presentation, I talk, talked about buyers needing to pick up the baton. And, and I do think that vendors and particularly the tech platforms within the out-of-home space have done a phenomenal job at getting things to where they are from a tech perspective and also selling selling this in right but my, my gripe is and and we spoke about this at media post with with a ton of the other agencies is that we need more collaboration and we need more of a consistent voice from the buy side because right now we've had a lot of tech platforms and a lot of vendors talk about programmatically selling their own platforms and their own inventory Whereas we need now a consistent voice. And, and I think actually, if you look at other channels, CTV has done that particularly well. CTV has you know, grown massively over the last few years. Um, and it's because there's been a consistent voice around how you ac- activate and execute in, in that particular space. I think also, um, you know, not only do we need some collaboration, but the buy side in general needs to scale up their capabilities and I you know I speak to various people across other agencies and they're at probably different points in the journey and I think we just need to share more of the learnings quite honestly because I think if someone comes to me and says you know how much should I be spending on programmatic digital out of home or you know questions around those kind of things will probably have different answers coming from different agencies and there needs to be more of a consistent voice. Yeah and you you and I did we challenged a handful of folks, right? You challenged the agencies and said, let's collectively get a group of agencies together around programmatic, kind of like a subcommittee. But on the this publisher side, we do it as well. And, and I'll be honest, like I'll give a shout out to uh, Neil Shapiro at Outfront and Wade Rifkin, Kathy at Clear Channel. Love those guys. I mean, mm-hmm. we literally text. I was texting Neil yesterday and we're, we're collaborating. It's kind of like, hey, because we all live in the roadside venue type in digital out of home. So when we're all talking to the trade desk, sure, we have different special sauce and different things that make Lamar better than Outfront, Outfront better than Clear Channel and, and vice versa. But at the end of the day, making it simplistic, as you had mentioned, and then just speaking in one voice, like it's roadside billboard. So it's, it's, it's a 14 by 48 on the side of the road. The impression multiplier is the same. We're all using the same data and let's roll, you know, and let's not confuse the marketplace. And that's what's happening too often. Um, so I, I love when you, you talk about that. The next thing you talked about was uh, find the seat and consistency is key to growth. It's, it's, it's a follow on from the previous point, to be honest with you. It's... You look at out of home share in the US, and depending on which figures you look at, it's somewhere between two and four percent. That is modest. 
there's a lot of room for growth. And I think if we do it in the right way and consistently, we can really start tapping into dollars coming from CTV or, or digital video, wherever it is. There's, there's a big opportunity there. Um, and I think as long as we pull together and pull in the same direction, there's a massive upside to programmatic and what, what it can offer the industry. Yeah. And I love that you, I know we're going to dovetail off a, a bit when I ask you this question, but I, I love that you brought up CTV. You know, COVID definitely gave them their jolt. Yes, they were on the way with the, the premium streaming services, but they had no problem bashing out of home during that time. Like Nobody's on the streets. It's a ghost town, which we all know that's not 100% factual. But my point in saying that is touch on that right now. You know, this is very near and dear to me, but there's a writer's strike. There's a lot of stuff that's not being made. You know, I have a daughter that now has shifted over. Luckily, we had a fun conversation about like how this doesn't affect you because you're 11, but there's a writer's strike. So there's a lot of content that's not being produced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are out and about. We, we were having this conversation. I think it might have been with Neil Shapiro from Outfront last week, actually. Um, and we, we talked about Neil the writers. All kinds of shouts out here. I love it. Yeah. Hey, Neil. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things. And, and, you know, I think the CTV industry has done it really well. They've they've obviously created this story around what CTV offers. You can now buy it, a, you know, in an addressable way, which is really important for, for big agency groups like Dentsu and their clients. Um, but like you say, there's a year from now, there's going to be no content to watch or at least no new new content. So we need to jump on that and we need to develop a unified voice across the industry that, that addresses that. And I think sometimes we're a little bit slow if I'm completely honest, I think as ever, and you talked about this with the programmatic piece, you know, the capability always seems to be there, but actually the, the, not the effort, but certainly the execution lags. So we're always a little bit behind. Um, but I think we need to get, get in front of that. And I think bringing the buying teams together and the buying agencies together will, will help kind of determine that story. You talked about this a good bit, but define and measure success. And you touched on it briefly around measurement is key. And, you know, we're finally coming into our own. Uh, some of the best conversations that we've had with, you know, DSPs and brands alike is when we say the data partners that we work with to help measure, when they have that moment, Mark, and I'll never forget the, the first one we had, we were talking about a, a political campaign and, you know, the political data set that we use to measure. And they're like, that's perfect. That's what I use for all of my online mobile and social campaigns. So touch on that a good bit. It's I know GM's a big client of yours. The ability for you to speak within the agency and to the brand to say, we can use the same exact data set, both measuring and planning and buying for this campaign as you're using across all other media. I believe that that is what changes the modest, you know, five to 7% year over year increases that we get. Yeah, I use GM as an example because it's a really good one for us. They opt into M1, which is our, our audience data set. It's very, very robust, has a ton of different data sources, but then they also relay, uh, they can plug in their first-party data as well. So we can specifically buy around the audiences that are most likely to be in the market for a particular vehicle, which is the first time we've ever done it. Unsurprisingly, the results have been amazing. So we've tested brand lift studies, drive uh, foot traffic to dealerships, everything when there's a data layer involved in the planning and buying, everything points to that being more successful than just buying a blanket out-of-home campaign with no real you know, location bias or anything like that. And we're seeing that across the board. It's not just GM. Every client that opts into some kind of data set or uses data at the planning and buying stage sees better results off the back end of it. And, and that's for kind of short-term purchases and also more considered purchases like cars and houses. 
things like that. So it's key, measurement is key, and I, you know, measurement can be construed two different ways. It could be the audience measurement or the attribution. I kind of lean towards attribution when I talk about measurement because I think that's the most important thing. But I think the next step is mixed media modeling. Yes. And, and understanding how out of home could be measured in inside those models alongside other channels and, and what it contributes to that. The data up until now hasn't been strong enough to support those kind of studies, but I think we're getting there. And the fact that these standalone studies are showing out of home delivering amazingly well for our clients means that I think we're pretty confident that, that once we do get that right and, and mixed media modeling is normally or, or including out of home as a norm, we're going to see benefits there as well. Yeah, because how great is it when you have the ability, you know, today, this is how for our listeners that, that aren't aware, there's there's binds that happen on mobile, online, and social that are happening in real-time optimizations. So the ability to say, hey, when thresholds are met on TikTok or below this certain level, move content here, here, and here. So the ability to change that. So taking that to the next step with uh, mixed media mod- modeling is, you know, today we live in RTB. But it's kind of, I say, near real time. But how great would it be is if that GM campaign is overperforming, underperforming on certain social platforms, which we know that that's probably the case, and to be able to optimize and move money to out of home, that's huge. Because today, outside of the programmatic side of things, and I want you to kind of touch on this, it's kind of like we measured that campaign, it saw you know phenomenal results. So next year, we're going to increase that budget for Dentsu for 5% in next year's campaign. Yeah, and, and, and it happens, but we're still only measuring out of home on, it, on its own largely and it's, and it's isolated, which, you know, it's great. It proves that out of home works, but actually what, what is its impact and contribution across the entire marketing spend? And I think that's, that's what's important. We really need to address that and we need to come up with a way of including out of home within those studies. The worst thing for me is when someone comes to me and says, oh, out of home didn't perform in mixed media modeling. And I said, which data did you use? And all they had is a market name or DMA name and a number of impressions. I'm like, guys, this is not good data. We can provide better than that now. There's a lot more granular data available. You're not going to get good results if you don't put a good amount of data and a good quality set of data in there in the first place. Yeah, and that leads us into kind of the back half of the the podcast here. I want you to talk about this a bit, but as we were prepping, you know, brands and agencies kind of realizing that both the upper funnel media and the real world experiences like have so much more of an effect on consumers than influencer marketing. And, and dare I say, fake out of home, which is crazy that we even have to even ask these questions and have these conversations. It's, it's so timely. We presented this to a ton of clients yesterday in a, in a Road to Out of Home series where we talked about this very thing and the real world experiences. And someone said, well, well, how do you quantify or measure the impact of a real world experience versus a fake ad? Um, and we bring it back to trust, actually. You think about out of home, it's a really well-trusted medium. It's almost like a local signpost. It's part of the fabric of your community. In fact, if you look across young people, they actually trust out of home more than things like influencer marketing, which is incredible from where we were probably five, 10 years ago. I think if brands keep leaning into this fake kind of ads, fake news, CGI type campaigns, they're going to lose trust with their consumers very quickly because people are going to realize, well, they didn't really do that. So what's cool about it? It's just kind of cool, cool bit of CGI. So I think advertisers that do it need to be very, very aware that they could be jeopardizing the trust that their consumers have in them. 
and you, you know, real world experiences. I'm slightly older, so I kind of lend myself to, the, to these kind of experiences anyway. There's nothing like a real world experience. You know, going to watch an NFL game or a college football game is much more fun than watching it on TV. Going to a music concert is much more than listening, you know, listening to the song on Spotify. So these real world experiences in the out of home space are going to have a, a much more of an impact on the consumers, but also they can be shared just like the, you know, the fake CGI ads as well. It just means that people actually experience them. Yeah. And well, the real life example that a lot that kind of went viral was the train going through with the eyelashes. And I, I do have to say there's a lot of people in the out of home space that you looked at their LinkedIn page and they were posting that all day. They're like, this is great. We need to see more of this in the US. And, and I, I despise the fact a group of us years ago, when I first started talk about old, I've been in this industry for 18 years and very early on, whatever digital rolled out, it was purely out of just like joking, but we were like, we're just going to come up with a phrase like DOH, D-O-O-H instead of O-O-H. And now seeing F-O-O-H, foe out of home and these kind of fake concepts, it's, it's, you're right. Like what the trust that's going to be lost and from the publisher side, there's a lot of lot of work and effort that goes into leases, making sure. And and look, I don't want to say we predicted this, but we kind of, and I'd love to get your thoughts, when Google Earth became this huge thing, we were like, we have to be very cautious of billboards that actually fit into this space because, and I believe Google is kind of going down this path, teetering mm-hmm. with it is literally selling ads to overlay over those boards should you jump into Google Earth? Now, what's the impression value, blah, blah, blah. But there's a lot of, on the publisher end, and even a lot of our friends that do these stunt type, you know, 3D renderings and pop-up shops, like that. that's detrimental because if you create all this excitement on social, and let's say you are in that market, and if you are at London in the underground and you, you want to go see it and you go to look and it's like, there's no such thing there. Mm-hmm. That jeopardizes the brand itself. And Barbie was guilty of it as well. In Dubai, they put this massive fake Barbie out. Yep. And people in Dubai were calling it out like, hey, that's not a real thing. It's, it's funny. And, and like you, I saw the Maybelline example from London blow up on LinkedIn. I actually didn't see it on my social channels. So I think there's something in that as well. A lot of the shares that I saw were on LinkedIn rather than you know Instagram and the other social um, channels. It's not good for our industry. And to see some other people across the out-of-home industry kind of post that and say, oh, this is great. I'm like, well, we need to think about this a little bit because actually what you're doing is encouraging people to not buy real out-of-home and just overlay with these, these fake ads. We talked about another example, and I don't want to go off on a tangent too much, but if, how many TV commercials use billboards? Tons. How many of those brands are buying out-of-home regularly? Very probably, probably not many of them. So it's so funny that there's this kind of expectation on a, on a TV commercial that we're going to use these billboards because people see them and they work and it's a great way to visualize what we're trying to say. But yeah, they, they don't re- use it in, in real life. So it's, it's funny and I think we do need to be very careful. I think the other one that we've seen at the moment is the Sphere in Las Vegas, which is this great new screen. I think I've seen probably 20 different brands already mock up fake ads on those. Um, and I think there comes to a point where vendors need to turn around and say, well, hang on, we're going to write something into our leases where we're going to send a cease and desist letter to anyone who tries to take this intellectual property and make it something that it isn't. Because you can, you could quickly become kind of the, the company. And look, we, we do mock-ups all day for, for brand pitches. When you guys brainstorm, we'll come up and mock. But it's 
there's a very strong disclaimer even within our organization that says these are mock-ups, these are not to be used or shared on social media because of that. It's protecting the brand, but it's also protecting the medium itself. So I, I love to hear that within the agency itself has you know that very pointed. So kind of as we wrap up here, I know you're super excited about this space. It beyond programmatic, beyond just you know battling the fake out of home. Never thought I'd have to uh, be in that arena, but you know, I'll put on the boxing gloves and go. But what else, what else excites you? And what are, what are a lot of your, your brands that you represent within Dentsu? What are they excited about in this space? I think data in general, and I know that sounds like a really nerdy response, but I think particularly with data, with programmatic, with measurement, we haven't even scratched the surface of, of what is going to be possible. And I'm excited for us to realize some of that unrealized potential. As I mentioned, we're, we're around two, three, four percent as a channel. I think there's so much more growth in the industry if we get it right. And I do think we've got a window of opportunity over the next two or three years where if we really get this data approach right and the programmatic piece and then have that end game with the measurement and the attribution sorted and nailed, I I think we're going to be in a really, really good position for for growth over the next two years. And I know that's kind of like a nerdy response. I would say the second thing is just I, I look forward to the continued creativity, right? I think we had a couple of years where there was a bit of a vacuum in creativity. We're really, over the last 18 months, but I would say particularly the last couple of months, we're seeing a lot more creativity come back into the out of home space. And I'm looking forward to kind of seeing that grow, looking to see how technology can advance that as well. I feel like 3D out of home has become almost the norm for, for Times Square and, and, you know, big kind of uh, areas like that. Um, so I'd love to see what's next. What, what, what is the next set of technology or, or data set that we can use that's really going to accelerate and supercharge out of home? Love that. And look, any for anyone that's going to continue to evolve and help push this industry, you're you're definitely one of the iconic figures that you've evolved yourself into. And and I can say this with confidence because I, I saw you go off into that pseudo cave and learn, but you're you're a very passionate man and and you truly believe in the industry. I mean, you've literally been at it since you were 16 years old. And I'm excited from the publisher side and as a friend to be able to have folks like you in the space to where we can just say like, hey, like what else do you want to do? Like how mm-hmm. do we how do we think about this? How do we think about holograms in the future? How do we think about wearables? How do we think about, you know, clean AI and how it can help us as an industry grow? And, and you're definitely one of those pivotal people in in the industry. So I can't let you go without because we just like Yes, you're having a child, which is exciting. Yes, you played in the Premier League. Yes, you played the trumpet like my son does. But three kidneys, like I, I literally prepping for this, I looked up as a, as a non-medical <laughs> professional. I was like, what, what is the uh, advantages of having three kidneys? So uh, there, there, There's absolutely no advantage, I can tell you that. <laughs> if anything, it's caused more hospital visits than I would like over the years. However, it, it's it's my icebreaker. So every time I go into a, a new client meeting or a new business pitch, and you have to go around and, and tell a fun fact about yourself, everyone's caught, you know normally like you know I played the trumpet or I did this, I did that. This is the one that gets people talking because they're like, "What? That's a, that's a thing. You can actually have three kidneys." And and then the follow up joke is always, "Yes, and if you need one for the right price, I'll give it to you." <laughs> that's, um, that's what I was put a bounty on this for the podcast it's actually it's actually more common than you would think and it's just a, a ran, random kind of thing that i found out when i think i was about 30 years old after multiple kidney infections and and hospital visits finally had a scan and they were like oh yeah you've got you've got three kidneys it's amazing cool. 
but there's n- there's absolutely no benefit whatsoever. It's uh, yeah, I wish there was. Well, look, I'm I'm excited for your time. Uh, again, your passion for the space is so exciting, and most importantly, I, I truly am looking forward to little Bartholomew showing up later this year. So, yeah, for you and your wife. So, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's I, I don't think I'm quite prepared for how much change is coming, but it's coming. Well, look, knowing you, how you prep for programmatic, I'm sure you've already started the uh, the books on how to how to be a dad. I'm sure, oh, you're yeah. on volume twelve of mm-hmm. thirteen. So, good luck to you, and always here for you if you need some advice. But thank you again for your time, my friend. Absolutely, I'm glad we finally got to do this. It's been a while. We've been talking about it, so thank you for having me on. Of course, thanks, bud. Thanks. Digital and Dirt is brought to you by Lamar Advertising. To learn more, check out the links in the description or go to lamar.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Spotify, Apple, or other platforms where podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.